please let us know. Um, don't let money be an issue. Uh, we, can, we have scholarships available for anyone who wants to come or wants to go. We're going to set rides up. It is a really good time to hang out um, and spend time together. Sammy Rhodes will be the speaker. He's, uh, kind of, he's starting to become kind of a well-known writer and speaker in different areas. He wrote a post on Desiring God not long ago, which is great, where he was recommending six things every college first-year student needs to know. And it was really, really, really excellent. So I, I really recommend fall conference. It's fun. There's, there's a lake. There's a slide. Uh, there'll be college football. Come, suck it up. Uh, also, if you're interested, we have in the back um, a little red box for comments, for questions. If there's something that kind of tweaks you here tonight, or if there's something that where you'd like to know more or get better connected, and somehow you don't run into me or Anna Grace or someone else, like... Throw down a quick note in there. Uh, it can be anonymous. It doesn't have to be anonymous. Uh, if you want to contact us, you totally can. Uh, or you want us to reach back out to you, it's great. But it's in the back. Uh, it's here to serve you and help us figure out how we can better serve you all um, while we're here together on nights. Um, so I read. I don't read, but I, well, I do read some. But, <laughs> but I listen to uh, certain pastors and preachers, and that's kind of a way that I try to get better and try to think through sermons and kind of this kind of art of sermon giving. And recently I listened to a guy and he kind of told this story from where he read an article from a guy named Gordon Keith, who's part of the Dallas uh, News. And this guy had written kind of an op-ed piece for them called Incredibly Busy and Willfully Slothful. And this is how it goes. This is him speaking in the first person. He says, by favorable calculations, I misuse 93% of my time. The resulting guilt is a poisonous, low-level radiation that creates a self-powered shame spiral. Colorful words. In fact, I'll waste an entire day searching for dopamine hits to medicate the fact that I'm not getting anything done. I'm a distraction junkie. In many ways, I'm representative of an American contradiction. Incredibly busy, willfully slothful. People say that I'm the busiest person they know. But I know what my days actually produce, and it feels like not much. Even though I've got a to-do list the size of hell's roll call, I revert to shopping for stuff I don't need, to nibbling social media pellets. Distractions are refined sugar for the soul. Brief, enjoyable, crashing. Ooh, BuzzFeed, ouch. Uh, <laughs> Uh, you know, we could approach this, or we could approach this article and say, you know, this is a discipline problem, or this is a time management problem, or maybe even this is an anxiety problem. And those things might be some, some handhold on that larger problem, but deep down at the center, the very core of this, what would the Bible say is the problem? That this is a soul problem. That when you take good work, or anything else that's really good, a relationship, status, some great personality traits, when you take something good that God's given you, and you make it an ultimate thing, eventually the goodness in that kind of gets squeezed out, and we feel that deep down in our bones. You know, to make your significance work, like what this guy is talking about, leads to anxiety. Oh, I've got so much to do, I've got to, I've got to focus which leads to escape. Ooh, BuzzFeed. Oh, Facebook. Did somebody send me an email just now? 
which leads to wasted time, which leads to guilt, which leads to shame, which leads us telling ourselves, all right, I'm going to get a handle on this. I'm going to try harder next time. But do you see what the problem there is? That I'm going to try harder. I'm going to work harder at this thing. It's just me relying on my hard work to get over this problem. And that takes me back into that cycle. You know, that our problem is that we want to take the good things that God has given us. Or our work ethic, our brain power, the funny things about our personality, the things that attract people to us, and we want to make them our ultimate significance. But the God of the Bible calls us to make Him and His work our true significance in life. So tonight we're going to talk about grace. We're going to talk about how God gives us that significance. And before we begin, let's define grace. That grace is God's free act through Jesus where he pardons Christians of everything they've ever done or said or thought or intended, and he accepts them as being as right with him as his son, as Jesus. And he doesn't just bring us from like negative down here to zero, but he makes you as right with him as Jesus. So you go way up, right? He credits you with all of Jesus' obedience, all of his good intentions, all of his good thoughts, all of his good speech. Grace is God giving you everything that Jesus owns at no cost. So Paul tonight is going to be telling us some of his story, his story of grace. And he's saying, look, I murdered people. I threw innocent people in prison. And God did what to me? Get angry with me? Tell me I had to make up for it? He showed me his grace. He charged me nothing to get in with him. And he put his son on a cross for me so that I would be as right with him as his son. So now we're going to talk about three things. A life apart from grace, life through grace, and a life changed by grace. So let's read Galatians 1, 11 through 24, and we'll get started here. This is Paul speaking, telling his story. For I would have you know, brothers... That the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. Now I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people, so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me, in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia, and returned again to Damascus. And then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, and remained with him fifteen days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And what I'm writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went to the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were here, and it was said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. Let's pray and ask God to help us with this passage tonight. Father, I know that um, many of us come from all over the place tonight struggling with perhaps anger or fear or loneliness or sadness, feeling as though we're worn down with our burdens, with our cares. Lord, some of us are coming from great places, some of us are coming from bad places. 
But Lord, wherever we're coming from, you know our destination. And you know where we've been. Lord, I pray that you'd be with us tonight. I pray you'd walk with us through this passage. I pray you'd walk with us through life. Lord, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Now, when you read scripture, uh, you start to get a sense of Paul's life. Right? What kind of a guy he was. And at no point, as you're reading, do you think, this guy is somebody who does things kind of halfway. When he's in, he's all in. When he's a Christian, he's like one of the most active Christians ever. When he's not a Christian, he's a violent persecutor of the church. He's responsible for the death of at least one man. He imprisoned as many Christians as he could. He's also moving up the ranks of Judaism. He's advancing beyond the people around him. Paul paints a picture of himself here as a brilliant, disciplined, hardworking, but maybe a little misguided guy. From a just-get-things-done kind of perspective, he's the kind of person you'd want in your leadership, right? He's the kind of person you'd want in your organization. You don't want him against you, but if he's going to be behind your back, you want him all in, right? But what's driving him? What's the engine behind Paul? Is it love for God? No. He puts his finger on this. He says, no. He says, zeal for the traditions of my fathers is what drove him. He loves the ceremony. He loves the pure bloodlines. I mean, some of us here in North Carolina can kind of relate to this in some ways where some people have lived in the same small town or come from the same small town for like hundreds of years. One, for me, one of the, the perks of moving to North Carolina is that there's a Stokes County here, which is where my family was originally from uh, like 250 years ago. Uh, and I will admit that I get a little like tinge of glee, <laughs> a little bit of pride from saying like my family had a county named after them. Um, I think that's some of what Paul is putting his finger on here. That he loves that kind of delicious feeling of moving deeper and deeper into this kind of inner ring. He's working hard. He's advancing beyond other people. He's making sure that people who haven't put in the same amount of work get it. And I don't think Paul is that extreme of a case. Do you realize that in some ways this is a tendency of all of our hearts? Have you ever thought to yourself, I would do anything to be a part of that group. And it might be something big and prestigious on campus. It might just be, especially if you're here and it's kind of your first semester, to be in with some clique, some group of like really cool people that get you, that know you, that want to hang out with you, and that you're just in. There's no, and all the other people out there have to get to watch you all. And we all want this. We all want this. Because the human story, apart from God's grace, lives by a pretty hard and fast set of if-then rules. You know, if I can just get into the right sort of music, if I can just wear the right sort of clothes, if I can just date the right person, make the right grades, if I can just do enough crunches to finally get that sweet six-pack that I've always wanted, (laughs) then what? Fill in the blank, right? Then I'd finally feel like I was a somebody. Then there would finally be an us they don't have that awesome six-pack and people get to look at it when we play volleyball. Instead, I leave my shirt on. <laughs> um, whatever it is, the rule in our hearts tend to, tends to say that if you put in X, you will get out Y. And right now, that might be grades. In five years, that might be money. Later on, it could be a promotion. But if I work hard, if I play by the rules, if I put in my time... Then what? 
Then what? Fill that in for yourself. You'll climb the ladder. You'll get in the right click. You'll be one of the it people. I don't know where the top is. I don't know where the top is for you. I don't know where it is for me. But will we just keep climbing? We all live in this meritocracy. We've all grown up in this meritocracy. And for, for the Christian life, so much of what we need to get over is that sense that this is a meritocracy. I've got to climb my way through it. And for many of us, that will be our lifelong project. Just unburdening ourselves of those worldly rules and taking on the true rules of the kingdom. Which is God saying to you, there is no if-then. Or the only if-then is if you are in Christ, you're a new creation. If you live by faith, you have all of me. If you are in my son Jesus, I love you and hold nothing against you. Those are God's if-then rules. This leads me to my second point. Look at verses 15 through 16 here. This is life through grace. But when he who had set me apart before I was born, and who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me, and Paul goes on. Look at what he says there, where he says, He who had set me apart, he who had called me, he who was pleased to reveal his son to me. This is a little, a little Greek grammar for you here, but Paul is talking about what's called a divine passive, which sounds kind of halfalutin, but basically what it means is that God is the actor. God, the divine, is operating in Paul's life, and Paul is passive. That God, God calls him. God sets him aside. God works grace into Paul's life. God is the actor in grace. He gives Paul what he needs to be right with him. And I don't expect what everyone, everyone here to believe what the Bible says. I don't expect everyone here to kind of be on board with miraculous conversions. However, let me just suggest this. If you allow for an all-powerful, all-knowing God, then there's a lot that gets put on the table for what is and what isn't possible, right? Paul doesn't go into a ton of detail here, but if you were to look in the book of Acts, the book we studied last semester, you would see that Paul is this man, he's out trying to kill Christians, persecute Christians, he's traveling on the road to Damascus <coughs> to kill more Christians, and then Jesus meets him on the road in this kind of miraculous conversion, and right there on the spot says what? Paul, you're murdering my people. Zap. You're dead. No. He says, Paul, you're my servant. He makes Paul the, the missionary to these people who don't know him. The rest of Paul's life is him wrestling with how much does God love me? That when I persecuted him, when I hated him, he loved me and was kind to me. That's the central question of the rest of Paul's life. That's what, he, that's what sets him free. That's what makes him whole. That's Paul's life in grace. Um, this summer, I watched a few YouTube videos. Um, <laughs> uh, and one of the ones that I watched is this really interesting one by a guy named Tommy Edison. Not Thomas Edison, Tommy Edison. And what was interesting about it was this is a guy who's been born blind. And he has this YouTube channel. I don't know what his day job is, but his YouTube channel is him trying to help people who have sight understand what it is to be born blind. Uh, so in this one video I watched, he goes to this convention center where all these people are meeting and it's some sort of trade show or something like that. And he goes up to people and he says, well, explain to me color. I'm blind, I've never seen color. Explain to me color, you who can see. And he's like, well, tell me about red. And people are like, well, red is a passionate color. Red is eye-catching. It's intense. 
He goes to another set of people, explain to me gray. And someone says, gray is really soft. Another person says, gray is this really hard metallic. Do you get kind of like the sense of why this is tough for Tommy Edison? That like, they're explaining what these colors are in terms of color, right? Um, someone said, he said, asked for pink, and someone says, it's like 5,000 screaming teenagers. That's what pink is. I mean, you can hear that, you get a sense of what it is, but is that really what pink is like? It can be hard to have people who've never seen understand these things that are very true, very real about the world. A lot of us see color. Um, A lot of us see in color, right? And I tell that story because I think for some of us who've grown up hearing about grace, we've been trying to wrestle with what grace is, been trying to understand it, sometimes when we talk about grace... It can be as though you've been blind your whole life and people are trying to explain to you color. That grace is like this thing. Grace is like that thing. I can tell you what it is, and yet until God makes you able to see, I'm not sure you'll be able to see it. I think it's hard for us. I think it's difficult for us to wrestle with that, and yet it's true. For some of you all who've come and you've heard about God's work in our lives, and you've seen what He's done in His Bible... To, to actually understand what grace is, you actually need God to work in your life in such a way that you don't have the power to open your own eyes. It is though you had eyes, but you could not see. It is though you have ears, but you cannot hear. And what we need is for God to help us to show us what grace is really like through community groups, through people who love us, to get a better sense of that bigger love of God. If you look here, what Paul says as he, look, as he talks about that he receives this revelation of Jesus, that Jesus actually comes to him and shows him and opens up his eyes to what grace is, that for us, you know, I don't want to tie God's hands, but you know, a lot of us are probably not going to get a vision of the risen Jesus on a road to the pit someday. Um, but for us who sit here, who have God's word before us, I want you to consider that the Bible is God's word that the Bible is his revelation of who he is. That you have the Bible, it's his revelation, and tied to that is his redemption. And that we know who God is, we know what grace is, we know how God acts because of what his word tells us. And that the Bible is not just words about God, but it is actually God's word, able through his work to open our eyes and to give us new ears and a new heart. And that that is not for us to pick and choose the words that we like out of it, that is to accept the whole of the revelation of who God has revealed himself to be. That that is the way that God works. That is the way his grace operates in our lives. This takes me to my last point, being changed by grace. Look at what Paul says about himself in verses 17, 18, and 19. He doesn't consult with anyone immediately. He doesn't go to the other apostles immediately. He goes to Damascus. Three years later, he goes to Jerusalem where he meets with Cephas, which is another name for the apostle Peter, and James. Why does Paul tell us all this stuff? I think he wants us to know that when he encounters God's grace, it makes a new man of him. Before he's busy climbing the ladder, he's advancing beyond many of his own age. Now he's content. He can advance, he cannot advance. He can go and live in Damascus and do who knows what for three years. He can go and meet with a couple of apostles, but he doesn't have to meet with all of them. He doesn't think of himself as a big deal. What's changed in this? Paul's heart. Before the stance of Paul's heart was that his life was really about him. That he's advancing beyond his peers. He's crushing the people that get in his way. 
He's supposedly doing all these things for God, but they're really for him. What's Paul's life about now that he's in grace? Now that he understands it. Look at verse 24. The very last thing he says. And they glorified God because of me. Paul's life isn't about him. It's not about what he can do or where he, what he will do or what he should do or where he's from or what his people are. On the one hand, it's not about the terrible things that he's done. He's persecuted God's people. That he's really hurt people. And it's not about how smart he is, how in he can be. Paul's great life is about God. It's about what God has done in him. It's what God will do through him. Because Paul understands that when Jesus Christ entered his life, that he put on Paul's shame. And he gave Paul his glory. His right standing with God. And so Paul now doesn't have to live for himself. He doesn't have to try to get in. He doesn't have to win other people's approval. He doesn't have to earn his way anywhere before God. But he can go and he can live and he can be a big deal. He can not be a big deal. He can know the right people. He can not know the right people. He's fine. Because God has made him fine. Think about what this would do with your anxiety with school. Think about that. Suddenly, it wouldn't be about you. If you're crushing it, that's great. If you're failing, you know, too bad. But it doesn't destroy you. Your life isn't wrapped up in what you do. You can try, you can succeed, you can be in, you can be out. Your life isn't defined by you or what you do or what you don't do. It's defined by God's grace. Think about what this would do to our community groups or to our first-year Bible studies that we don't keep a tabs on attendance. So I don't know who goes, who doesn't go yet. <laughs> Spent a lot of time thinking about that joke. <laughs> but if you go, yeah, that's right. That's my life. Uh, <laughs> But if you go to either one of those things, go and wrestle with who you are in Christ. Go and wrestle with what God's Word says about His grace, about how He's revealed Himself. Go and wrestle with the highs and the lows in your life because your self-worth, your standing, your significance isn't tied to what you've done or what you've not done. It's your glory or your shame, but it's tied to what God has done for you in the glory of His crucified and resurrected Son. That's the story that God's telling in your life. That's the story God's telling through RUF or through the other campus ministries at UNC for that matter or through His church. But the story of God's grace in the world is the story that the Bible tells. And it is your story if you would have it. I'll end with this. Um, Another YouTube video I watched this summer uh, because another pastor um, (coughs) told this story and I'm unashamedly taking it. But there's an antiques roadshow. <laughs> Bet you didn't see that coming. There's an antiques roadshow uh, a few years ago where they were doing kind of top ten uh, most valuable, most expensive things to ever come up on antiques roadshow. Which, if you know it at all, is this show where people come and they bring kind of the stuff they found in their garage and they try to get someone to assess how much it's worth. And this is the most expensive thing that had ever been on antiques roadshow. And this woman comes. And she sits down with this guy, and he's like this very professor-looking guy. He's got like, the tweed jacket, and he's kind of bald, and he's looking eh, like a little bit like he's an expert kind of deal. And she sits down, and she lays out before him this beautiful oriental jade bowl and this beautiful jade pitcher, and next to that, this fabulous jade dragon. 
and he looks at them and he holds them in his hand and he turns in this way and that way and he looks across from her and he has this kind of smirk on his face. He says, do you know what these might be worth? She says, no, I, I have no idea. My granddad went to China like 100 years ago, brought them back, I inherited them. I have no idea what they're worth. And he looks at the bowl and he looks at the picture and he looks at the dragon and he says, I'm going to butcher this name. He says, these are from the Queen Long dynasty. And this bowl right here and this picture right here, each one of them could easily fetch $100,000 at auction. But this dragon, and he turns over and he shows her the underside of it. This dragon has an imperial seal on it. It was made for the emperor of China at his own request. This dragon is priceless. And he hands it to her and he shows her from every angle the jade and the lace work and the scales and the teeth and the claws that's beautiful and it's powerful and it's ancient. It's for an emperor. He says, look at it. Look at it from every angle. It's beautiful. You know, in the gospel, Jesus gives you everything freely. And he hands you his life and his death and his resurrection. He gives you all of God's joy, all of God's welcome, his friendship. The fact that one day he will wipe away your tears. One day you'll see him face to face and he will smile at you and call you friend or daughter or brother or son. God makes all things new and he does it through his gospel. And whatever way you turn that, however you look at that, it is beautiful. It is ancient. And it's from the great emperor himself. So if you would grow, if you would know him, then turn this thing around and look at it. Meditate on it. And find yourself in it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word to us. Thank you for your revelation to your son Jesus of all that you accomplish through his life and his death and his resurrection. We know that apart from his word, we do not have life in you. But in his word, we have all things necessary to live and breathe and have our movement. Lord, I pray that you would be with us. I pray you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Lord, that your grace would be an operation in our hearts. Whether we've known you forever whether we would just know you tonight for the first time, or that we would know your gospel and know it deeply, drink deeply of the beauty and the power and the age of your Son. In your Son's name we pray. Amen. Thank you all.